1: All right, welcome to the Sword and Shield podcast. I'm Colonel Rick Erridge, 960th Cyberspace Wing Commander. And today I have a special guest, Tech Sergeant Daniel Holter. He's the co-host of Disruptive AF Podcast, and he's uh, really a, a leader in the innovation space. So we're really excited to have you with us today. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, so uh, I stumbled upon um, a podcast, the Disruptive AF Podcast, through an email I received through formal channels through government email. And so I hit it, I was interested. I got super excited when I listened to the first episode there. So, um, and and you guys are really talking about the things that I really try to um, operationalize inside of a wing. And so I'm really looking forward to discussion today about how we can take innovation and, and give our unit members an opportunity um, to really live it. And, and really it's about solving problems in my mind. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like to, a lot of people like to try and figure out a good definition for innovation and I like to keep it broad. Uh, My favorite definition actually is just novelty with impact.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, And uh, we are in mission space in the cyber world where there's plenty of opportunities to, um, to to be novel and solve problems and 16th air force actually is is trying to move to this this concept of convergence where we're bringing multiple capabilities and people together to solve problems for our nation's leaders and so it's, it's moving away from the the weapons system concept into using people's brains to be creative and solve problems and so um, one way to do that is get people to think differently about about the business. And so I know that the first podcast I listened to you guys, you spent a lot of time talking about um, what does disruption mean and and how leaders look at that. And how did you get into the, the innovation space and how were you interested in um, in in this topic as much as you are?
0: Yeah. So I would be happy to just kind of tell my innovation origin story. Um, I am a Chinese linguist by training in AFSC, um, I've been in for about 16 years. And for the first, I think approximately 10 of that, I was just operational Intel uh, doing translation work. But for the, for the entirety of that time, I was well aware that technology and processes should be capable of doing more things than they were uh, because they were kind of hamstrung by, the way we did business, by the bureaucracy, uh, and also by the slowness of our acquisitions processes. For example, I um, spent a lot of time in tech school learning Chinese and, and I used to be able to use this wonderful tech um, that once I went into the operational Air Force, I was no longer able to use. And I felt like I was moving back in time to, yeah. uh, to actually, you know, like using tech that was from 10, 15, 20 years ago Um, which is frustrating for somebody who's well aware of what technology should be able to do for them. So it's kind of a disgruntled innovation type at that time. And I think there's a lot of us out there, especially with the younger generations. Um, they just spend so much time interacting with, with technology in their daily lives that they know what the gap is between the present state for, you know, for the air force and, and what what would be possible if we just got modern technology and used modern processes. So around, uh, around 11, well, so I've always had run into these policy issues with, with specifically with the exceptional family member program. And, and I ran into a really big one, um, about between 10 and 12 years into my career. And, uh, it was going to separate me from my family at a time when my daughter was on hospice. Um, and, uh, she, she ended up passing away about a year and a half ago, but, um, for a majority of my career, she was alive and, and I was dealing with these really rigid policy problems that just didn't make any sense to me. And that, 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 uh, sort of, there was a moment where I was kind of like, well, I'm either going to end my career or, uh, or I'm going to, solve this problem. It, and I wasn't, you know, the the Air Force was trying to send me on a, a three year unaccompanied tour, uh, while my daughter was actively dying and, and it just didn't make any sense. Um, but nobody could seem to figure out how to resolve this issue. So one of the things that I did was I studied a lot of what causes organizations to be capable of innovation because I was really confused about what was happening here. Like w- we all understood that this didn't make logical sense. Um, and, you know, there should be a solution, but we couldn't figure out how to make that happen. And I was running into, you know, what's what's often called the frozen middle. Um, yep. We ultimately ended up being able to solve that problem, but it took three years. It, you know, got me a lot more bitter for a little while there. and uh, And then... Having kind of educated myself on on innovation, uh, organizational innovation strategy, I talked my way into a position standing up an in innovation cell at the at the wing level. Um, so I was the the NCOIC of uh, innovation for for the wing cell, um, and that gave me the opportunity to dig into the tactical level practices. That facilitate innovation, so creative problem-solving methods, facilitated practices, um, things like Scrum and Agile, and you know modern, modern practices that just increase the, the uh, adaptive capacity of a of a workforce. And um, after doing that for a while, I, I uh, w- went on to another assignment where I was doing Intel work again. But during that time, I started a community of practice for facilitation of things like design thinking and and uh, other design methods, and that got me the attention of the leadership at Air Force CyberWorks, who then plucked me out of my uh, assignment where I was and brought me to CyberWorks, which is where I am today. So now my full time job is at Air Force CyberWorks as a uh as a facilitator and a designer um and so i've been here for about a year i got a couple more years of uh doing what cyborgs does which is apply human-centered design methods to air force problems so that kind of brings you to where i
1: am at this point well first of all i'm so sorry to hear about your daughter that's oh, thank you that's terrible oh and trying to figure out how to navigate that space at a time like that, you're dealing with grief, let alone trying to figure out the policy. So I I can't even imagine trying to deal with that. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, Yeah, it it informed a lot of how I think about uh, leadership as well as innovation today.
1: Yeah, I I have seen recently, and of course the reserve doesn't participate in EFMP just because we don't have assignment systems like that. Um, But I have seen a number of, at least some messaging about changes to the FMP program. And of course, have yep. some having some partners here that are Regaf partners that are dealing with things not not as grave as yours, but their frustrations as well. Even 06s and 07s can't solve problems. Um hopefully you've made a difference there.
0: Absolutely. I, and I I was really um actually pleased to speak to the the office at AFPC in the in the subsequent years after that. Um, period, that they have invested a lot more in looking at um, preventing the kinds of situations that that we had. I actually did a TEDx, um, I, I gave a talk at TEDx Hickam on the subject of, uh, I kind of told that story of, of that policy issue and the things that caused it to resolve, or the, the things that caused it to be the case in the first place, um, which is that any environment things change and you have to keep revisiting the value that you were intending to create um, and f- make sure it's not violating that value. Um, and then the things that will actually resolve that. So uh, if you, if you're interested, I could share a link to that talk. Um, Cause I'm really, uh, honestly, there was, I've always just been confused about the, the disparity between what people know should be the case and their ability to make it happen. It just didn't make logical sense to me. Um, and so I I dug a lot into the motivational incentive factors. Um, I ended up reading a whole lot of books on the subject of innovation. And, um, and that's kind of what got me to where I
1: am uh, these days. Yeah, that's awesome. When I, you know, I, I'm i an 06 now and as a reservist, oftentimes policies are built for the regular component, and they don't fit neatly for us. And but yeah. yet I'm on active duty, right. And so I become frustrated as well. And um, struggle at times when I say, say to myself or other people like that just doesn't make sense. Like that defies common sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, why are we doing something like that? And I ask why? And I kind of feel like sometimes even me as an six, like I'm afraid to ask the why, like I'm going to challenge somebody's um, that, that this has been their policy or their baby, or they're going to say, you just don't understand, or it doesn't apply. And so I fight that urge myself in order to keep pushing, because in the end, I'm usually trying to solve a problem for an airman for something that just doesn't make sense. And and we're wasting a lot of time on Um, how, how have you found that approach of being persistent and, How do you keep yourself going and just continue to fight through the bureaucracy to solve problems?
0: Yeah, I'd say that the persistence element was what has resolved like the most severe problems that I've experienced because it, you know, some, some things never get resolved until you outlast the people who are defending the status quo <laughs> which you know cuz they actually don't have to exert that much energy to de- to defend the status quo um you know it it is it is much easier they have a much easier job because they the um the return on investment for continuing to do things the way they are Is apparent and it's known, right? Yep. Whereas the second you start tearing things down, you're inviting entropy. You're like, you're opening the floodgates to a whole lot of unknowns. And that looks to people like risk, right? So for people who believe it's their job to protect the institution from risk, which a lot of program managers, that's within their job description, right? I've seen a wing commander say we're going to do this thing and say it directly to our office. Okay, go ahead. You have my approval to do this. And we were directly reporting to the wing commander. And then one of his staffers refused to make it happen. And <laughs> from their perspective, he didn't have the authority to do that. And so it was a really interesting. I had to. I had to really empathize with that person. Most people don't like the, most people don't go the step of empathizing with those stakeholders and go, what is it about this system that causes that person to have this mindset? But usually there is a very reasonable systemic basis there, Sure, which is, you know, so I, and I think this brings me to what I do believe is is the ideal, you know, if there is a a toolkit for uh for getting after you know wicked problems within a bureaucracy, it is using methods that are human centered and incorporate empathy for stakeholders um, specifically like I'm trained up in a lot of in a couple of design thinking methods um, I'd encourage people to not let any one individual try and tell them what the definition of design thinking is because it it is a lot of things in a lot of different contexts but um, human-centered design and design thinking. One thing that's really uh, very clear is that you start with the ethnographic, like lived experience of the people being impacted, and that might include the stakeholders who are expected to 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 in, you know implement or execute the you know whatever you're you're trying to do. And until you get really familiar with what their needs are. And what the context within there, you know, within which they're they're supposed to have a the desired behavior, um, you can build something that works in theory, and then you put it out there, and it it just doesn't happen. And that's a really frequent thing, actually. Uh, it was a it was a very common problem in software development with waterfall methodologies where you build a massive list of requirements and then you spend millions and millions of dollars building this uh you know software package and then you and then you put it out there and uh there have been a lot of cases the the book scrum talks about a famous one you know i think maybe even in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars where is an fbi system that got fully built and then was never used because it didn't work because methods that don't incorporate the uh, the user participation and feedback process um, are prone to be full of uh, you know uh, incongruities with their with their lived experience. So um, yeah, so when you're talking about like the frozen middle, you're usually talking about people who are in a sense stakeholders or or users who were not brought in early enough in the problem solving process, which is something that's resolved by using methods like design thinking.
1: Yeah, that's that's outstanding. I've had my own, uh, spent a little bit of time in organizations in terms of software development and was right several years ago, 2016, 2017, we we're switching from waterfall to agile and it, it, it was hard even to get the developers um, yeah. to move to something different to understand, like, I mean, I got to talk to my customer. Like, that's yeah. important. <laughs> like, yeah, well, yeah, because, and, and nobody wants to waste their time and effort, but it was just a different mindset. And, and we wanted yeah. to un- unleash them. And we took, um, we took the biggest complainer, and the biggest, the person that had the most vocal feedback and said, help us fix this, then, like, yeah. we want to be able to meet your need. And, um, it didn't take long, actually. It, the, the developers moved much quicker to, hey, this is really going to make my job easier, and I'm not going to waste time doing something or, or rework something. And so they got to the point where the customers were like, hey, can we formalize this little, like, like I can't keep getting tagged all the time for input on your, you know, I'm trying to be the SME in my program. And so we had to rebalance that a little bit, but it was amazing to see the change in a short period of time if you have the right people.
0: Uh Yeah. And I'd say like a lot of, this is a really general idea. It was something that you just hit on is the idea of outputs versus outcomes. Um, Software developers in a waterfall context are focused on outputs. They're given a, a, something that they have to build that has to function in a specific kind of way. Right. That needs Mm -hmm. this list of features um, and it needs, you know, there's probably some mock-ups as they needs to look something along these lines and when they get those when they once they've built those the product the artifact they're done because their job is an output but when you make it everybody's business to reach an outcome then no matter how much you've built if you still haven't solved the user's problem your job is far from done and that's why in scrum specifically the, the idea, you know, that it's very similar to the minimum viable product idea where you want to figure out how can we create something that will create tangible, tangible value right now, immediately, as soon as possible. Every sprint has to be about career, the creation of value. And that's the, you know, at the heart of what human-centered design is, is it's tying your effort to outcomes rather than outputs.
1: Yeah, that's what we, when we implemented, we went with scrum first, because we were kind of um, just trying to figure it out, frankly. And, yeah. and we didn't have a lot at that time, there wasn't a ton of people to lean on that we knew about. We had a contract force and um, trying to deal with the contractors too, and, and interact with the government. And so um, I think it worked out well. And I think they're doing great work even today, and they're all bought in. So in yeah. in, in in many of those cases, I think we've had success on, on small scale. But um, how do you, how do you deal with like the disagreeable people even if they're just flat out like for whatever reason entrenched or or just want to be difficult like have you any techniques or experiences that you've seen that have worked to um either on the customer side to get them on board to participate in the process or just from inside the org um how we can get yeah i
0: Honestly, so when you say disagreeable, one of the first things that pops into my head is that disagreeable people drive innovation, um, and it, that comes from I think I got it specifically from either Malcolm Gladwell or Adam Grant. Uh, Adam Grant's book "Originals" is really good in that regard. But the the idea of being disagreeable is in on like a the the Big Five psychological. Uh, you know, personality scale. Disagreeableness is the willingness to kind of ruffle other people's feathers. It, you know, it's, it's the ability to just uh, not worry about social pressure, not let social pressure impede you from, from speaking out. And one of the things that I realized, you know, as I was studying innovation is that it, if I did a personality test, I'm sure that my level of disagreeableness would be very high. Um, And that's one of the things that I think makes me the innovative type. So, so I, and the reason that I'm starting with that is because it, like the threshold for me, something doesn't have to be that out of whack for me to point to it and go, that's stupid. We should not do that. Right. Um, What some people might consider to be socially inappropriate And they just ignore flaws in the system for the sake of going with the flow. Disagreeable people are those people who have a ton of ideas about, you know, the ways in which we can improve things. So some of those people, some of those disagreeable people are in positions of, you know, where they're in defense of the status quo and bringing them over to the side of, uh, change i think it, it it's kind of what i was saying earlier it's all about understanding the basis for why they believe the status quo is less risky and making the case that the status quo is actually higher risk than adapting to a changing environment some of that is going to be about them personally feeling like it's riskier to their position to step out and do things that might fail, right? So long as you are maintaining a system that somebody else built, you can't ultimately be blamed for what happens within that system. You were put in charge of maintaining this, right? Um, So that makes it a personal risk to, to go and start making changes and dismantling what people before you who might've been smarter than you built for the way things were then. So you have to come up with some kind of, you know, means of bringing them over, feeling like, no, actually, I don't want them to feel like personally at risk, like you're threatening them, but almost to that degree at points where it's like, this is some of the power of senior leadership messaging. It's like, if you're not, you know, accelerate, change or lose. I I actually really like that language. Although I I believe it was, the original pitch was "Accelerate Change or Die." Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, that gets so,
0: Yeah, but the reason I like that is because that evocative, like visceral language, it should make people feel. The messaging coming from senior leaders should make them feel like I am more at risk to maintain the status quo than I am to, you know, be making changes. And then you have to figure out, and I think it's different for, for different individuals, which is why there's no standardized thing, which is why in user experience design, we do, we interview, and in design thinking as well, you'll go and do a, a one-hour interview with a stakeholder or with a, or with a user, and, and a significant portion of that is figuring out what motivates them To behave in the ways that they do, because in a lot in many, many contexts, and uh, you brought up earlier that it's not about a widget in in many contexts, in almost every context, I'll say, innovation fails without behavior change. If you you introduce a new technology and and behavior doesn't change. You, it will fail. It, it, will, it will not be implemented. If you, this happens in Agile all the time, if you implement Agile frameworks in a software organization, but they don't change their values and the way that they interact and their communication structure, if all of that, the patterns of culture and all of that does not shift to support the new, what what you just installed, it will fail. It'll be rejected like a donor organ, right? Um, and so if you can't get like spend some time really getting to the heart of what motivates people to remain in the behaviors that they are, you won't have any hope of convincing them to adopt new behaviors that feel risky.
1: Yeah. That's, that's super interesting. And sometimes I feel like I'm the disagreeable person all the time. And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) as a senior leader here, I kind of feel like that's my role And uh, with other senior leaders yeah, um, I, I personally struggle with trying to get them to. To me, it's clear, um, and so this is really this is really helpful for me to understand it from a risk perspective. To try to um, tr- try to understand it, maybe from their perspective as well. You know where they sit in their view of the world, and and try to articulate it well enough to make our point that um, you know in the cyber business things change so fast and so rapidly, and technology emerges so fast that we we need to be you know super agile yeah yeah
0: absolutely what one of the things that i find across a lot of the work that i do is that essentially what we're doing is we're just increasing the amount of conversation that's happening with with facilitated work it's conversation in the form of Often you're you're imposing some kind of constraint so that the conversations are very strictly guided in a way, but one you know like Steve Blank and you know who's the you know behind uh, the, the I Corps and hacking for defense and he's a he's a really great resource on um, innovation in the DOD. He talks about leadership by walking around or or get outside the building because and And that's a really common theme for every innovation management, and strategy uh, method that I've encountered, Many of them, one of the baseline transformations that they recommend is increase the amount of conversations that are happening across silos. And that includes the vertical silos between leadership and and the operational level. Um, if you can, uh, you know, as a facilitator, we talk a lot about holding space. It, it, and that's because people don't naturally start a conversation with coworkers they aren't friends with unless there's like a problem or an ask, right? So they don't spend a ton of time n- naturally getting aligned to one another's views or becoming, you know, kind of becoming entrained to the same values. Um and so as a facilitator, honestly, like one of my, one of my f- most recommended facilitated methods for any organization, just to like, uh, you want to level up your team's innovation capacity, start with this really simple facilitated exercise. And it comes from agile and scrum. Um, I believe it might, might predate them, but it's called the retrospective. And when I was introduced to the retrospective, it was a weekly activity where everybody on the team, this was our wing innovation office, everybody on the team would on a Friday afternoon, we would, you know, turn off our computers, we would go into the room where we did retrospectives, there were comfortable chairs, and we would sit there and silently write down on sticky notes, all the things that had happened that week that were good, uh, all the things we could think of that had happened that week that were bad and then other stuff we wanted to bring up. And then we would put them up on the board and we dot vote on the ones that other people put up that we agreed with. So a really interesting thing happens. And then after you've put them all up, somebody who's facilitating goes, who wants to talk about this one? And then you go one by one, you have a conversation with the team about the most important things, the wave tops of what happened that week. And you have this, you know, the silent part is actually really important because silent generation allows everybody to have a voice, um, and it causes it gives people room and space to, to think of things that they wouldn't in the course of you know like a fast moving conversation, and um, and it does these really amazing things. But one of the the most incredible, in addition to like, in addition to just bringing stuff up and being like, oh, we we needed to do something about that, right? So. It's an obvious like weak signal detection mechanism for finding opportunities for innovation because you just, sure. oh, here's an action item based on on this week's retrospective. It also has this incredible aligning function. And I I've spent a lot of time as a facilitator and thinking about the culture of organizations I've written a lot on the subject of alignment because I think... That when you do practices like that, where you increase the conversational capacity of your organization and you get people aligned culturally and strategically, um, you don't run into that problem of, uh, Hey, here's an idea or here's, here's a solution. And then realizing that that person is thinking something completely opposite from what you are, which is, you know, what you're talking about with, with the frozen middle, it's that you aren't actually on the same page as that person at all. So if you're on in the same organization, working towards the same goals, you should be strategically aligned, but in order to be strategically aligned, you need more than just like action orders or, uh, you know, an artifact that says your organizational values, which is why I tell organizations to co-create their, their values with the team, because it's, Having values doesn't mean anything unless everybody's aligned to them. So, yeah, sorry, that was a bit of a.
1: No, it's okay. It's okay. This is awesome. And so, um, and so that resonates with me because you know we spend a lot of time on being a new organization, trying to get people aligned um, to what we're doing, and we've got we've got eleven different locations spread across the United States, and so there's people I'm never going to see. There's airmen I'm never going to get a chance to interact with. Uh, yeah. maybe virtually all, you know, they can see me, but I'll never see them. And so when I go out and travel now after COVID here and do unit visits, you know, I, I take this one page infographic that talks about where we're aligned and what our strategy is. And so, um, yeah. And I'd say if you're
0: attempting to do that as a wing commander, you're attempting to do that at scale, but that can't be on you. Like that happens alignment happens as a result of conversations. You can't have conversations with everybody in the, you know, at best you can broadcast to everybody in the organization, but even that, it is, that would be a challenge, right? To do on a regular basis. So what has to happen is you have to have multiple tiers of regular conversations happening that are people bringing people to into alignment and then make sure that those tiers have, you know, cross fun, like, uh, have conversations. I'm actually thinking of like, this was popping into my head right now is team of teams. Um, which is yeah. one of the, one of, one of the books that I derive a ton of innovation theory from, uh, and what they did in the, in the joint task force included a weekly, one hour call with the entire organization where anybody is welcome to speak up which if you think about it from, (laughs) for an organization, I think they went into detail on that on in a one mission or is it one mission, uh, by Chris Fussell. Um, and it's when I heard about that, I was like, can, I can't imagine a, a squadron doing a one hour weekly conversation or I don't even see that happen at the flight level. Right. Right. A one-hour weekly conversation, but it should probably, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, conversation is the only technology that brings people into alignment. You can push values on people, and you can push strategy on people, but they need to they need to talk to each other in order to disambiguate and to 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 actually it, like integrate that into the way they think um, and to figure out. Well, what does that mean in my context? It, you know, strategy is often so abstract that it's like, what does that have to do with me?
1: Right. Um, well, it's interesting. It, we took this approach with, you know, the racial violence that was happening, um, COVID, yes. and we and uh, you know the the insurrection stuff, January sixth at the Capitol last yeah. year. Like, we forced those conversations, and it felt natural for us to do that. Like, we got to be able to export that into the innovation field and think about the way we do business and treat it that way. And, and, you know, we bring our, our leaders, squadron commanders, senior staff, and the, and the senior listed leaders together every six months to talk about it. And I think um, I just, you know, I haven't taken that next step. Right. So I've said, Hey, here's a strategy alignment. Here's the why we're doing it, but I have engaged them about. And so I, and now that we talked through this, I see cracks in that alignment throughout the next six months. I'm like, well, what do you mean you don't understand? Like we talked about this. No, that was yeah. me telling them they were not bought into it. So yeah, this this is really helpful. That that next step, I think, is we need to spend time just talking about it and, and getting getting people um different perspectives and views on um why that doesn't make sense to them.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. I I one of the one of the books that I recommend. Like to the most people on the subject of why you need facilitated practices is called uh, liminal thinking. It's by Dave Gray. It's a really interesting book about how, just kind of about the how cogn- you know cognition happens and how our perceptions are are even dig- you know there's a feed forward mechanism in the OODA loop that our uh, our expectations dictate what we see and. Um, like we don't even see the same things as each other. The only way to disambiguate, to, to like get into alignment about that is to use better technologies than, uh, social technologies, uh, is one of my, one term I like to use. Um, so yeah, liminal thinking. I've also been spending a lot of time recently. I'm working on a fun project called meeting design, where if you think about, meetings as the operating system of an organization, right? That's where the, that's where the interactional like computation happens. It's where sense-making ideally happens, but most organizations don't think of meetings as a useful technology. They just kind of borrow practices that it seems like other people think they need to be doing. And so you end up with these dull lifeless slideshows, you know, the last for hours. And it's like, w- well, why are we all sitting here looking at program managers slides? Do we know what these numbers mean? Do we act based on them? So if you think about meetings as the operational, as the organizational operating system, um, and you kind of are aware of alternatives, like you, like you find in the scrum framework, right? You got your, you got your daily standup, uh, you got your retrospectives, um, daily stamp is a really interesting, uh, approach. There's also like this Amazon meeting, the, where they all start the meeting, silently reading the same document, um, for like hmm. 20 minutes, which I really like because it, nobody's, nobody's privileged going into that. It, you all just read the exact same thing and now you're going to talk about it together. And it kind of levels the playing field for discussions So there are these alternative methods and approaches to sense making together that increase psychological safety, that uh, generate, uh, you know, action oriented outputs, for example, that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. And it's why I'm so excited about facilitation is because there's just so many opportunities to to uh, implement when you think about uh, what is our meeting system? how often do we have this type of conversation and therefore what can we expect our, our alignment to even be? Um, so yeah, that's, yeah, that's that's great.
1: Yeah. So we, you know, as even a new organization, we fell in some of those pitfalls about, um, well, this is the way you know we've meetings are done and wings have previously been in, let's do that. And so, um, yeah. and, we, and I'm trying to talk about, hey, we're new wing, like we get the chance to rebuild this. We don't have this institutional knowledge that's telling us we have to do things differently. So we have taken some different approaches of trying to use data to make decisions, only present yeah. data that's ready for decision, um, yeah. not, not do PowerPoint slides, but show actual data from source data and i asked the question why are we why are we looking at this data if it's if it's not for decision then yeah lower level leaders need to make their decisions based on it why do i need to as wing commander so yeah. um, so we're trying to do some of that um but uh, i found fascinating when i read the story you've probably read this too about google studied what makes some teams um perform better than others and and they spent like two years studying all these different teams and they come to find out that it was something as simple as, um, the teams that performed better, um, knew more about each other, were well aligned and, and had this sense of empathy for each other. And yeah. often they started their meetings with, Hey, everybody talk about what happened last weekend. And the story goes that there's one guy that was part of the team that was struggling with something like you did with your daughter. Yeah. Um, with with you know cancer and his immediate family and nobody knew about that and as soon as he opened up about it they talked about it like that team's performance went off the chart and so yeah it's fascinating those those simple things that we just often don't think about can be the key to unlock you know the airman's potential and and me as a senior leader i feel like that's my job is to create that culture and environment for those things to happen
0: yeah, absolutely. And that hit, that kind of hits on I think that even the metaphors we use often when we talk about the you know the institution, they're very mechanistic. We we think in terms of machines like a like a unit or a wing or or something. Like we could we could we could reduce it down to its component parts and make it really really efficient. And I actually kind of blame our employment, you know, there's like scientific management from Frederick Taylor. And, and uh, there's, uh, I actually kind of blame the process improvement methods that we employ as well, because they come, uh, they were sort of perfected in the factory floor setting, right? Yep. Or the Toyota, right? Mm-hmm. So the problem with trying to translate a factory floor to a dynamic knowledge work environment, which is a majority of the Air Force are people engaged in, in as well as the fact that when you start talking about the impact of culture, you can't just be be thinking in terms of the mechanistic processes of work. You have to think about the, the weird and complex processes of trust and alignment and all of that, which is to say that I, I think one of the things we're not that's really harming us is we're sticking with those mechanistic ordered domain metaphors. And so one of the things that I, I actually talk about a ton is complexity because I'm a, I'm a big fan of the, I don't know if you've heard of the Kenevan framework. Um, I have not, but it's, it's a, it's a, I did a YouTube video on it trying to introduce it. It's not a very accessible uh, set of, Theories, but the framework itself, I talk about it constantly because it's so useful. Um, it basically just really quickly describes that there are there are a couple of kinds of systemic states. One of them is the ordered system, and an ordered system is is contained and it can be reduced to its component parts. So, like an airplane is a is an ordered system. It's it's enclosed, and if you take it apart and you carry it somewhere else and you put it back together. It's the same airplane and it's still going to take off complex systems aren't like that. So that's like the most useful part of the Knaven framework is the difference between ordered systems and complex systems. And this is related to the mechanistic versus the organic metaphors I was talking about. And the difference is that in an, in an ordered domain best, you can come up with best practices and just keep using them and they'll work over and over and over. Right. Yep. Um, But in a complex domain, that's not the case. You need to, the only way to make sense, uh, the the heuristics they offer in, in complexity are to probe the system and then sense what its current state is and then respond. So like a really obvious example of that would be like in warfare, you can't reduce it down to its component parts. They're all so interrelated and interacting and in constant evolution that, the only way to, to make a decision is to go, what's the, get, let's get a snapshot of right now and then start experimenting and see what gets us the patterns that we want to see. So, you know, one of the problems with thinking uh, we're going to make this system more efficient is that efficiency is something you can pursue really well in ordered systems but when you when you are so hyper focused on efficiency in a complex domain, like on a team, you will you will lose track of the factors that are driving you know uh, lost uh, capacity or or the environment's changing. You know you talked about the uh, the war fighting, the cyber environment is we're falling behind, you know technologically and 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 uh, in terms of processes. I think a lot of it has to do with that. We, we don't act like an organic system. We act like a, like a mechanistic one.
1: Yep. For sure. Yeah. That's, that's great. Well, Hey, we're running out of time, but I wanted to address this one thing that you said that I found, um, really, really insightful. And, and I think our, our airmen can really take some 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 lessons from it so I, i'd offer you to to share some comments with it so and and i'm going to quote you it says you can't fall in love with solutions we have to fall in love with problems and so um, yeah that's that's really insightful
0: yeah i love that uh i don't remember where i originally got that but it seems to be a really common theme for people to latch on to something they believe is definitely going to solve all the problems and then get really, you know, disheartened when they realize that other people aren't bought in or they don't believe in it. Um, or they'll, or they'll persist. You know, we talked about the value of persistence earlier. I, and I've been guilty of this plenty of times. Um, you persist because you know that it would solve the problem. Um one of my favorite examples of this is actually communication tools because we like to think that a you know if we just adopt Slack or if we just adopt Teams or if we just get on platform one's matter most it'll solve our communication issues. So I've done this at many locations using many platforms. Um I'm in the habit of standing up new communication tools and i have i have my preferred tool and i have fallen into the trap of just trying to push it on people and it not working at all and i i'm get so frustrated i'm like you don't understand this this will solve your problem if you if you just use it the way it needs to be used but like you know like i said earlier that that behavior change is a make or break factor so if a terrible tool that they would actually adopt exists that would solve the problem way better than a feature rich you know commercial platform um which is why you know human centered design it's all about what what invokes that behavior change so that's why you start with what what problem are we experiencing and what would resolve it like what behavior would resolve it what be what behavior would we see? what are the measures of effectiveness? And then, for every solution, no matter how elegant it seems, you have to be willing to just go, yep, that's not that's not creating the value we decided was most important here. Um, and that's why having a having a process like user experience design or human centered design or design thinking is so important because it it builds in the right order starts with that problem and and the creation of value for human beings. Um, And it keeps returning to that over and over.
1: Right. Yeah. I think you got to continue to ask the question and make sure you're solving the right problem too. Right. And so um, yeah, you got to get some buy-in on what the problem is and then attack it from there as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of that frozen middle problem is that there are plenty of people who don't think that what, that what you're telling them is a problem is a problem. They just think, you know, they're like, Oh, that might be a problem for you, but it's not for the system. Right. So if, if the, if, if people within the system can experience a problem, but the system continues to function, that might, that might be a cultural issue, but you know, we, we do tend to privilege the, well, it's getting the job done. Like the, w- the mission has to come first. Right. So, um, but in an organization, I, I would argue that in, in an organization that's reflecting and, and, uh, having those conversations, you can deconflict. <laughs> like people don't have to be miserable or, or, uh, or crushed in the, in the gears of the, uh, of the machine, um, yeah. So I, I also think that it's really important to privilege people's experience as well in those conversations.
1: Yeah, that's excellent. Well, you are doing amazing work. And um, I don't know what to call you. I don't think it matters an innovator, a disruptor, or human-centered design experts, me, but you are you are crushing it. And I really appreciate your time today sharing your experiences and your story with with our gladiators. And and certainly we want to be able to um um, help support you and, and continue to learn more from you. So I'm going to tell all of our listeners to, to check out his YouTube channel. Um, check out the podcast for sure that, that he's a co-host of. Find the TEDx talk he did and um, follow him on all the social media stuff. I know I'm following him on LinkedIn. And so uh, really great stuff and insightful. And again, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. And um, best of luck to you in the future. Wonderful. Thank you so much
0: for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Excellent. Yeah. And if, uh, you know, I always tell us my, if you're ever interested in being a reservist, look us up. We got lots All of right. opportunities. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dan. All Appreciate right. it. Th- thanks, sir.